Hello, everybody. By popular demand, I am bringing back the intro to the show. So this is Cortland Allen with NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Hackers podcast. It's been so long since I've said that. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Justin Mayers. He's the founder of Kettle and Fire. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on and ask you all sorts of questions. You know a lot about growing businesses. You worked as a head of growth for a company called Exceptional, which was acquired by Rackspace. You've started multiple businesses that you've grown from scratch to tens of millions of dollars in revenue, including Kettle and Fire. And you also literally wrote the book on growth. It's called Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth. So why don't we start there? Uh, From a high level, how should founders be thinking if they want their startups to achieve explosive customer growth, Justin? Sweet. Uh, Just jumping right into it. Yeah, let's do Uh, it. (laughs) So yeah, so I think that one of the things, you know, we wrote Traction, uh, my co-author, Gabriel Weinberg, who started DuckDuckGo, he and I wrote Traction about five years ago now. And kind of what we saw at the time and what we still unfortunately see today is that uh, if you're a founder, in general, you are putting in two to five times as much effort into product development, product, you know, that kind of stuff than you are into marketing and into traction. And the reality is that like almost all great valuable businesses, not only do they have a product innovation, but they also have a distribution innovation. And so we think like, and what we talk about in traction is that building and developing that distribution innovation, figuring out how to get traction is almost as important, possibly more important than, uh, than figuring out like how to make the perfect product. I know this is something that a lot of people will disagree with me on, but I think if you, you almost certainly have heard of or found multiple products that you're like, this is just kind of a shitty product. Like how did this get on my radar? Why is everyone talking about this? Uh, and the answer oftentimes is like, there's a really good marketer behind that product. And so in traction, we talk about how to approach the whole idea and solve the problem of like, how do I get traction for my startup? And the way that we talk about is through something we call the bullseye framework, which is this idea of like figuring out what are the one to two core channels uh, that you want to focus on as a business that will get you traction, whether that's SEO, paid ads, content marketing, you know, influencers, affiliate, anything like that. And then we kind of walk you through a process of like how to test, measure, and then decide what channels to invest in, in terms of your kind of marketing mix. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Cool. There's a, a ton of advice out there for growing and building startups. And a lot of it's very bad. Uh, but yep. I think if you're a, a brand new founder, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between bad advice and good advice. So for example, there was a time not too long ago where it felt like every week I was reading a new blog post on Medium about how the only thing that matters is product. Product, product, product. If you want to grow, all you need to do is build something really great. Not as many people say that anymore. I feel like a lot more people have come around to your way of viewing things, or actually there are other variables that matter. Distribution matters. Having a good market matters. Are there any other bad trends or advice or misconceptions that you've seen spreading that founders (laughs) would do better to ignore? Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting to me right now that I kind of think is a bad trend is, well, two things. So one, I think it's a really bad idea in general to have, uh, I think the idea of product managers is often a bad idea. It's like a way for CEOs to sort of delegate thinking about the product to someone else that has less information and can make worse decisions. I get product managers in in a lot of ways. Um, I think they can be great with a startup at scale, but oftentimes I think starting out, like your job as a CEO is to make product decisions. Like it's to make, it's to set the strategic vision in the company. And a lot of that involves like, what is your company actually making? Uh, and so I think early PM hires is something that people are doing a lot of right now that I think is kind of stupid. And then another thing that I kind of see out there in startup advice land, if you want to, if you want to call it that is I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people just launching very, I, I feel like there's this, there's a sort of trailing effect that I see a lot of where it's like something worked five years ago or three years ago. Someone made a bunch of money or some set of people made a bunch of money on it. They start writing medium or blog posts about how they made a bunch of money. And then people start launching those businesses like two years later and they're almost guaranteed to failure because it's just a completely different environment. Like I, I know that you and I met, I guess, four years ago now, I think something like that. Yeah. A while Um, back. Yeah. 
Uh, I think you and I met when like the whole bootstrap buy a micro cap SaaS business and grow it was like a thing that 40 people were talking about online, you know, and then we went out and did this. My partner Ryan and I bought a business called FOMO, which we'll talk about in 2014. And now I think like I'm looking at some of these micro cap SaaS companies and like, they're so competitive. You're getting a legitimately horrible businesses that are getting bid up, you know, four to seven times EBITDA. It's just like, oh my God, like this, too many people made money buying small businesses, small SaaS businesses and growing them where it feels like that, that field is much more picked through right now and a way, way worse idea to get into uh, than it was, you know, in 2014. Okay. So there's a lot of depth here and we're going to go into it, but let's back up for a second. I just want to talk about how you first got into this, Justin, and how you learned the things that you know now. What were some of those significant early steps you first took? Yeah. So when I was in college, I was 20. I basically decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had like a crazy, crazy year. Uh, personally, I call it like my Justin vortex where I basically like went into the year of one person and came out a totally different person. Like <laughs> my, my dad like lost his job. I had a friend commit suicide. I like broke up with a girlfriend, broke up with a best friend, went to college, like became an atheist, just like all this stuff. And so, and so coming out of that, one of the things that I took was, you know, my dad was kind of a career guy that was working in big corporate America for, you know, 30 something years at that point, 35 years or so. And he got laid off in like the 2009 recession, uh, 2008 recession. And so as part of that, we, my dad got laid off. I got rejected from an investment banking internship that I was like really hoping I would get and was literally working as a janitor at LA fitness. And so, uh, that's pretty much when I decided like, wow, this really sucks being a janitor. <laughs> the first day on the job, someone, some guy had like literally pooped into the shower drain in the <laughs> men's locker room. I'd like get a knife and like scrape it. It was no, awful. no. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I still don't know who that guy is, but fuck that guy. Oh um, my god! And so I was like, yeah, I, I just need to control my own destiny, and I kind of decided then that I would rather do something that where I full control my time, even if it meant I made like two to three grand a month. You know, I'd rather start my own thing, have control over my my time. Then I would go get a normal job. And so I started my first company in college, uh, totally blew up and failed as oftentimes people's first do, but I learned a lot. And then doing that, I managed to meet this other guy, Jonathan Siegel, who like took a big risk on me, hired me and like took me under his wing to run growth at exceptional, which like at the age of, I was 23, I was running growth and managing almost 10 people at exceptional. And we sold that business to Rackspace and like, that was an incredible learning experience. Trying to do it on my own, failing, and then learning from someone who knew way more than I did and do uh, was phenomenally influential and important to my growth. Starting a startup, it's better than uh, scraping poop out of shower drains. <laughs> <laughs> I should change that to the Andy Hacker's, Andy Hacker's tagline. Uh, yeah, that was a terrible job, let me tell you. <laughs> Not all jobs are that terrible, though. Exceptional seemed to go really well. You seemed like you learned quite a lot there. Why decide to become a founder after doing that? Why not just continue to take your skills and get better and better jobs? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think that I... A couple of things. I would say that I went into Exceptional with the mindset of like, how can I learn the skills that it takes to be a founder? I, I still was very on board and wanted to have complete control of my time. And I also like, candidly, my upbringing like we didn't grow up with a ton of money and i uh, i wanted to like be financially secure and i thought that being an employee is a good way to do that at the time you know this is 2014 when i moved to san francisco i thought that i had to be a developer to make money <laughs> and which i don't believe anymore but you know at the time i did and so i was like i don't know how i'm going to make money as a as a non-technical employee uh, so i guess i just have to start my own thing and it also kind of fits with my lifestyle way more like I knew that I wanted to be a founder. I knew that I wanted to try and solve problems. I get there's like a certain set of problems in the world that I get really passionate about solving. And I think that as an employee, you're always somewhat replaceable. You can be an insanely talented employee, but you know, the, the nature of a business is to make the business not dependent on any one employee. And so I think that like, if I look at the world, one of the things that that's really missing in the world is generally a, there's a lack of like good ideas and talented people chasing really hard problems. And so I wanted to try and be uh, one of the founders that like, if I wasn't starting a certain company, no one else would be. 
and, and try and like make a small impact on the world. And it was kind of like what drove me to, to hop back into being a founder. Part of being a founder is doing what's sometimes referred to as this explore and exploit algorithm. So first you explore, you try lots of different things, and then you exploit, which means you pick the best thing and you really focus on that. You've been really good at both sides of this coin. Let's talk about just exploring for a second, though. Can you walk us through some of the exploration phases you've been through and give us a sense of the variety of the businesses that you've tried to start? Oh, my God. Yeah, for sure. So after the Rackspace uh, acquisition, I kind of stayed there for a bit, did an earnout for about a year, quit three days after my earnout, and then uh, went to Brazil and like was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And so I was exploring a bunch of different ideas. Like at at one point, uh, I probably looked at 15 or 20 ideas during that year. Uh, at one point, I was and, and kind of like narrowed them down to three things, which were all completely different. I was looking at starting, or I guess it was five things. Uh, so I was looking at starting a uh, a software app that would help people recover from drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, I was looking at starting a real estate play that basically takes advantage of something called an es- like a somewhat esoteric law called a 1031 exchange and like a public market liquidity premium. Very random idea, but I was looking at that. I was looking at doing a uh, coconut, like a alcohol kind of spritzer company. This is in like 2014, 2015, that I think like White Claw, like I, I should show you the designs. It was super close to White Claw. Oh, yeah. Part of me is like, fuck. Um, Did they rip you off? <laughs> no, no. I mean, hey, man. They, they found the lost designs. <laughs> they launched it. I didn't get to them. But I was looking at doing like a, a 5% alcohol kind of bubbly, slim can, white, like alcohol drink uh, that was more healthy and like low carb, which is like almost exactly what White Claw is. So, is that just a, a, a coincidence that, it, that the designs are similar or is there like some sort of underlying reasoning why that design would work well? Uh, I think the underlying reason is there's kind of twofold. Like if you look at a uh, craft beer and alcohol, everything goes like hard alcohol, kind of dark colors for the most part. Uh, and it's only in the last couple of years that the white, more pastel kind of design thing that looks very bright and vibrant and healthy has started to infiltrate the, the alcohol space at all. And so wanted to do that to kind of signify like, hey, this is clean and healthy. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to do was the slim aluminum can so that like if you're someone who is trying to be healthy and not gain weight, holding a slim little can while you like yeah. strut your slim little figure, you know, that, that <laughs> actually is something that you feel good about. And so was looking at doing that, uh, was looking at doing Kettle and Fire. Uh, and then I think that's it. And then there was like a software business I was looking at doing uh, in the enterprise space. You've also done a lot of writing. I know you started a business with a pen name and you were you were selling books on Amazon <laughs> that weren't necessarily written by you. Tell us about how yep. that how that went down. Yep. Um, not <laughs> that's hilarious you found that. Uh, so that's like a joke, an inside joke with some of my friends. But basically there was one phase where I was uh kind of in that year off, I was I was looking at like what are long-term businesses that I can do and be really excited about. And in the interim, what are some like short-term kind of passive income things that I can also get going? And so one of those was, I realized that there were a couple topics that I knew a good amount about that there were not good books out for just yet. And so one of them was I I hired a a ghostwriter to write a book about like using nootropics for mental performance, published it on Kindle for like $2.99. And yeah, (laughs) so did that under a pen name because I like didn't write it, wasn't necessarily super proud of it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, just did that as a passive income thing, which sort of worked, but sort of didn't. <laughs> How much money does it cost to hire somebody to uh, write a book for you? Yeah. So so when you think book, you're probably thinking like Principled by Ray Dalio. This is probably way more like a fifth grade book report. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like 70 pages. It cost me $550 to get the guy to write it took about three weeks. Uh, I edited it, did a pass through and uh, published it for two ninety nine. And I think people probably got 307 worth of value out of that book. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you did good. Uh, yeah. And it did like, I think it did about $1,400 in revenue in the first oh, okay. like, six months. Yeah. That's not bad. It's not bad, but it's like, do you really want to spend your time making 700, you know, $900 uh, for every piece of shit book that you launch that you're not really proud? Like, no, not, not what I want to do. Probably not. So 
You obviously have gone on to start much more substantial businesses that have generated a lot more revenue and provided a lot more value for people. What didn't you know back then that was stopping you from starting these kinds of businesses? Good question. I think the uh, I think that the biggest thing that I didn't appreciate then is I had a real kind of scarcity mindset around money when I was looking at starting these businesses. And so I had this kind of mindset of if I don't outsmart the world and figure out how to like achieve some value and, you know, like make some money, then I'm going to be broke or unhappy or whatever it is. I think that's totally not true now. I think that had I just been like, okay, what do I care about more than the average person? Uh, for me, health and wellness is, is way up there. If I just said like, I, I'm going to do something in health and wellness because this is a space that I love. I care about it. I'm going to work harder than the average person because it's something I'm interested in and care about. But I'm just going to dig into this space super hardcore and figure out how to create value there. It would have worked out great. Like I kind of just stumbled into it, but I never should have been looking at real estate things or looking at doing like an enterprise marketing software tool. Just not not like a good personality kind of founder market fit type thing. So I think that now I way more value founder market fit and way less uh, value like or I think it's way less important personally uh, to try and figure out like how do you hack the world or figure out an idea that that works in a space that might be one you're not interested in. I had kind of the same transition where I was really? very opportunistic. I thought it would be so hard to come up with an idea that it was there's no way I can limit myself by only working on ideas that I was interested in. But it turns yep. out that if you apply that constraint you'll come up with even more ideas and you'll be much happier working on them because you actually care about the the subject matter. Totally, man. I mean, with the real estate thing, it was like, I, I kind of had a realization that it was like, even if this was the best real estate idea in the world, if that were true, I would start doing it for six months. Someone else would see that it's a really good idea who actually likes real estate and they would crush me. Like, or I would become a miserable person doing something I hate for four to six years it's just not a not a good outcome either way yeah it's a slippery slope back to scoop and poop out of shower drains huh <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> but you have to blame yourself in that case because you started the business totally um, man. most people don't have any ideas because they can't seem to think of anything uh unique and then there are people like you you've got Crazy. dozens and dozens of ideas what's the difference man i wish i knew the answer to that i think my ideas have gotten a lot better over the last seven years since i've been thinking about it I think probably the answer is some combination of like having really good conversations with people who are smarter than you, working with people who are smarter um, and reading a lot probably. But I, I don't know the, I don't, I don't know the exact thing. Like if, if whenever people say they don't have ideas, I'm like, God, that sounds so nice. Cause like, I don't know, come to me. I'll give you an idea. Like, please. Uh, I feel like I come up with, a couple ideas a week that I think are interesting and could work. It's just the average idea requires a lot of hard work and time, which I just don't have right now. <laughs> Is there any sort of pattern or formula for how you typically come up with ideas? So I, I think that one of the biggest things for me in terms of coming up with new ideas is I have become much more sensitive to what things are hard in my life or what things I don't like doing and thinking about like, how could I potentially solve this? Like kettle on fire is a great example. Making bone broth is a pain in the ass. I'm a terrible cook. Like if there was a high quality packaged option, that's probably something that would work. And if there's any number of people like me, it, it should be a, a decent business. Um, I think there's a ton of things like this that, and that's sort of heuristic of like, what is hard for you or what, what do you not like doing that something that solves any of those problems is they high potential would be a good business. Uh, and then the other thing I think that's interesting is like, assuming you're not a, one of the Collison brothers or like a Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs, like you're probably, which you're probably not, no offense. It's hard to just come up with super visionary ideas. And so I think the other thing that works really well is seeing what is actually working in one industry and applying it elsewhere. Like one of the things that, that we actually saw and, and that I've seen multiple times is like, okay, wow, SaaS, you know, being in software SaaS is taking over, uh, you know, people's workflows. It's doing all this stuff. Yet moving into CPG and the space that we're playing in right now of like physical retail, there's almost nothing in software. Great. That's probably a huge opportunity to apply an existing technology to something that doesn't exist. My, my partner Ryan and I are actually doing this right now with uh, we 
both worked in like tech kind of developer workflows and developer tools, you know, get commits, rollbacks, like a lot of this sort of developer management stuff is incredibly common when you're building software. However, it's still important, but doesn't actually exist in e-commerce. And so one of the new companies that we launched is called Store QA, which is like a basic way to manage and manage your kind of like e-commerce websites workflow and tell you, is this thing broken? Uh, are checkouts working? Are coupons working? Like just do the basically, con- you know, continuous kind of testing and, and QA process that is really standard at, at existing software and tech companies that didn't exist to e-commerce. Now we're building it. Like that's probably a good idea. This reminds me of a quote. It's a little bit morbid because I'm pretty sure Joseph Stalin said it, but he said, <laughs> quantity has a quality all its own. And uh, I don't know I don't know what he was talking about when he said that, but... Yeah, probably, probably something very, very dark. <laughs> probably something not great. But you apply it to business and you think about you, you know, talking to all these different people, working in all these different industries, coming up with so many different ideas. I just think there's a lot of reasons why this is so much better than becoming wedded to one specific idea and sticking with it no matter what and not really going through this exploration phase. Totally. For example, if you start lots of different companies, then you develop kind of a familiarity with what an average business feels like, which makes it way easier to recognize when something really stands out. It also gives you kind of a scientific testing ground where you can start to recognize, okay, this principle that I've heard about seems to hold true for this particular industry, but not for that industry. It gives you the breadth of experience to do what you're talking about and kind of cross-pollinate ideas where you can learn the best tactics or business models that people are privy to in one industry and then apply them to another area where nobody seems to know about it. What are some of the advantages that you saw from trying so many different businesses and how did that help you narrow down to just one? So I think that one of the things that I realized is kind of what you were saying, where if you are, like after seeing and testing a couple different ideas, I realized that when I tested another, another thing I tested that I didn't talk about was basically this idea that I think I called Optimunks or something like that. But it was basically this idea that a bunch of software companies spend millions, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars a month on their AWS and other server hosting bills. Those are generally relatively easy to negotiate down. And so we were doing a service or testing a service where, you know, if you would, if you're spending 50 grand on AWS bill, we get it down to 38. We'll take about half of those savings and just be the kind of assholes on the phone that are negotiating your cloud service provider thing. After testing that idea, we had some people that were excited about it, but it was somewhat of a lukewarm response. Had a couple customers that were game to try it. But at the same time, we launched a landing page for Kettle and Fire or for what would become Kettle and Fire that was just kind of testing interest in and uh, how excited people were to buy bone broth online. And when we launched that, we were spending $5 probably a day on ads and we're driving people to a landing page for a product that didn't exist. That was drastically overpriced where they had to pay PayPal to pre-order something. And people were converting like crazy. Like we were spending $5 a day on ads and making probably a hundred to 150. And so for me, I was like, that's a really good response. This is the, the world's shittiest landing page. I've paid someone $5 on Fiverr to Photoshop a logo that I paid another Fiverr person to make up onto an existing competitor's box. It, like the whole thing looks trash and scammy. And we're, do, we're doing really, really well from a return on ad spend standpoint. Like this thing probably has legs if we can actually figure out how to make the product. So this idea of a, a smoke test, putting up a landing page, driving traffic using ads, comes straight out of the book, The Lean Startup. What are your thoughts about running successful smoke tests like this in, in maybe 2019? How do you avoid getting a smoke test wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are a lot of people that have different thoughts on this, kind of the lean startup concept. I think that like Keith Boy is someone that I really respect who hates the lean startup and thinks it leads to suboptimal outcomes. I think he's actually right if you're trying to win the startup Olympics and build a billion dollar business, like you probably just need really high conviction in an idea and fact checked or idea check that idea with a bunch of other smart people. And then if, if it's a big enough idea and you have to raise a lot of money to go for it, like, fuck yeah, go for it. Uh, but if you're chasing something smaller, I think that like the risk most companies run into is market risk. Like, is this product or is this idea something that people actually want? And I think if you're at all worried about market risk, then in that case, 
you want to do some, some sort of smoke test and figure out, you know, what is the response like, or is this something people are actually excited about? And in the case of Kettle and Fire, at the time, there was not really a existing comp that we could point to online where people were selling bone broth. And it's like, hey, if we do this better, we'll probably capture some percentage of this market. It was like very uncertain if people actually wanted to buy bone broth online or how big that market was. And so uh, given that, I think that in those cases, doing a smoke test makes a lot of sense. And you want to look for like how excited are people by the response that they're having to the smoke test. And if the answer is blazingly obvious, like you put $5 into the smoke test machine and it spits out $150, that's a really, really, really good indication that this is something people actually care about. There's this continuum between, on one hand, entering a proven market where perhaps customers are already paying for a solution to this problem. Perhaps you've got lots of competitors and you can see that their businesses are working pretty well. And on the other end, blazing a new trail. You know, Maybe no one's ever sold bone broth before. Maybe they've never sold it online before. There's a lot of uncertainty there as to whether this can even work. A lot of people, in order to mitigate this uncertainty, will raise money from investors. Why didn't you consider raising for Kettle and Fire? It's a good question. Uh, I think it was two things. I think one of the things was I'm... I have somewhat of an aversion or had somewhat of an aversion to raising money. Uh, Now I think I have less of that aversion. But the second thing was I really was not certain that Kettle on Fire would be a meaningful business. And so in my opinion, the worst thing that you can do as a startup founder is raise money for a business that ends up being mediocre or in just like too small of a market. Like I think it's fine if you raise a bunch of money, you blow through it and you die quickly. Or if you raise a bunch of money, you sell, obviously it's great. I think the worst thing you can have is like raising money for something that just doesn't take off, but they are sort of have a fiduciary duty to run for four to six years. That just sounds like hell to me. And so I didn't want to be in that situation. And I was also fortunate enough that, you know, our first production run was about a hundred K and I was able to take some of my earnings from the exceptional acquisition and, and plow that into paying for our first production run. I didn't have a lot of leeway after that, but I felt pretty strongly that if that I didn't want investors, I was concerned the market wasn't going to be big enough. So it would make raising a bad idea. And then uh, after all of that, I was also majorly concerned that or I, or I ran the numbers and saw like, if these ad metrics hold true, the worst case scenario of me starting this business and plowing all this money into inventory is that it takes a year to sell through and I make my money back and I've wasted a bunch of time, but I'm like, financially fine. And so that, that kind of gave me the confidence to be willing to invest in the inventory and, and not want to raise money. So we are now at the exploit part of the explore exploit algorithm. You've hit on kettle and fire. The smoke test went really well. How do you exploit a great idea like this once you've hit on it? Yeah, I think you move quickly. You optimize for moving as quickly as you can. And so for us, we realized that we had a pretty meaningful advantage. We saw like the, the first month we launched, um, coming into Kettle and Fire, I thought this was going to be like a five to 10K a month business after one to two years. And the first month we launched, we did like 20 grand. The next month we did 40. Month after that, we did 60. And we were like, wow, okay, this is, this is like really picking up steam. And that was with a very, very minimal amounts of paid advertising. And so we just pressed down on the gas pretty hard and were willing to aggressively invest in growing our distribution, growing our business, investing in new products, investing in the team. Like I did not take a single dollar out of the business until I started paying myself a salary in uh, 2016, which was about a year and a half after we launched. And so we got, we got pretty aggressive on the growth front, Uh, but it also meant that we did like 280 K in the four months that we launched in 2015. We did like 2.8 the next year. We did 10 year after that and like have continued to grow. And so it's just been a, yeah, we've been pretty aggressive about growing. So a lot of your experience came from the tech world. Obviously, you were the head of growth at Exceptional. Uh, Kettle and Fire sells bone broth. It's certainly not tech. What's yeah. different about getting into consumer packaged goods? What's the same? There's a lot of things that are different. One of the things that I think was advantageous was I came from a tech background. Most people in CPG kind of world, uh, consumer packaged goods, which is like what our industry is called, um, they will start a business like Kettle and Fire and the roadmap historically has been 
I have this nice little bone broth product. Now I'm going to sell it into 10 stores around in the neighborhood that I live. Then I'm going to sell into 50. Then I'm going to go statewide. Then I'm going to try and go like in the region I'm in, then eventually national. And it's like a multi-year scale up kind of thing. I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to leverage my skills with online marketing. And so we went online as soon as we could and, and built out a direct to consumer capability that even today, very few uh, food brands kind of have on their, you know, internally. So we exploited that advantage. And in a lot of ways, it's like growing a bone broth brand using best practices from like the tech growth marketing world works really well. And it works even better because you're not competing against incredibly well-funded other SaaS businesses that are using the same tactics. Uh, at the same time, things that are different at exceptional, we had like financial reporting that was basically, Hey, here's how much we made this month. Here's how much we have to pay in salaries this month. That's about it. Um, it's really hard to, if you're making more money than you are spending, it's really hard to go out of business if you're a software company. Uh, if you're making more money than you're, than you have expense wise in a CPG brand, you can die instantly. It's crazy. And so figuring out how to do financial controls has been by far the biggest learning and is so different from tech. Cause like, do you mind if I give a quick example of what? Yeah. Yeah. Go into the details. Yeah. So, so to give you a sense, like when we were growing in 2016, I guess 2017, we went from like 2.8 in 2016 to 10 million in 2017. And that, so we grew more than three X that year. What you have to do if you're in that position is if you do a million dollars in revenue in January, you basically uh, have to plan. And let's say you're growing three X. So effectively you're doubling the business every, I don't know. What is that? Like three months, four months. So you basically have to like, if you have a million dollars in January, you have a million dollars that hit your, hits your bank balance. You then have to pay as if you're going to grow to 1.4 million the next month. And so you have to overspend on inventory, assuming that you're going to grow. And so as your business grows faster, the more and more money you have to throw at inventory, which means the less and less money you have in the bank. So I had a very memorable meeting with one of my advisors that year who was like, who has experience in, in CPG. And I was like, we're crushing it. We like double last month. I think we're going to like have another huge month. And he was like, how much cash do you have in the bank? I was like, I don't know, like a couple hundred grand. We're fine. And he was like, oh, so you guys are about to be out of business. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he was like, just trust me, you're about to be out of business. You need to get out like a line of credit right now. And he was totally right. And there's just weird growing nuances when it comes to building inventory for a physical product brand. Did you ever read um, Shoe Dog by the founder of Nike? I did too late, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that book was a nightmare. I read it and I was like, oh, there's no way I'm ever selling physical goods because it was the same story. He kept selling more and more shoes and eventually was doing, you know, 30, 40 million dollars in revenue and had like no money in the bank and was on the verge of dying. And the growth was amazing. And it's just yeah. such a foreign concept for somebody coming out of a tech world. It's it's crazy. The only way in, in these businesses, the only way that you actually get a bunch of cash out the win out the door is if you stop growing, which no one really wants to do. Or if you have like done a poor job of planning inventory and you've like massively underbought and then you can take cash out. It's just, yeah, it's either way, it kind of sucks. <laughs> Crazy. So let's talk about growth. I look at the parallels between your story and, and Nike, for example. At that point in time, people weren't really running and the running shoe was like this newly popular thing that everybody was kind of getting, getting into. And so growth just continued to accelerate and never really stopped. Um, with what you're doing, you're sort of writing on a trend as well. People are eating healthier. People care more about what's going into their bodies. The fact that you could come onto the scene and start selling, you know, this very healthy keto-friendly bone broth that others weren't selling is kind of an indicator that you're a little bit early to the market. What are some of the bigger factors that helped you grow Kettle on Fire and keep growing so you didn't go out of business? Yeah, I think um, I think one of the main factors is that we were early. We were like the first shelf-stable bone broth, and so. If you're someone who makes bone broth at home and you realize it's a huge pain, you realize it takes 24 hours to make and it's something you want to have as a staple of your diet, like we're a really good way to solve that problem. And so I think that like we had really good product market fit kind of from day one. And then in terms of keep, like how do we keep growing? We have an incredible marketing team that we way over invested in digital marketing, especially from a personnel standpoint. 
to build what I think is truly one of the best growth teams in direct consumer food that's out there. And so because of that, we were doing stuff like investing heavily in Facebook ads, doing subscription programs, doing influencer marketing, kind of before people were talking about it. And and so hitting these channels before they were over-optimized and like overcrowded uh, meant that we were really the first brand to get our name out there as a bone broth brand. And so it meant that as more people found out about bone broth from their friends drinking it, their favorite celebrity, their trainer, you know, whatever, talking about bone broth, we were one of the first brands that they went to and they heard about, which is really cool. And, and that meant that like, as the trend grew, because we forced our way to the top to be the number one brand, we kind of like grew along with the trend, uh, which yeah. was really, really helpful. It's super good to be number one because number one gets like 80, 90% of the attention share. Number two, yep. a few people have heard of number three. No one ever, no one knows who they are. Uh, totally. so you really accumulate these great advantages by being number one. In a growing category, I would say. In in a kind of static category, I think that like if we wanted to start a chip company, that category is not really growing. I think you could probably carve out an amazing niche, an amazing lifestyle business, and you don't have to worry about being number one. But you grow a hell of a lot faster if you're number one when it comes to like a trend that's that's growing really quickly. So let's talk about some of these growth strategies in detail. You mentioned advertising, you mentioned influencer marketing, and a couple other things. What do you think was the most significant for growing Kettle and Fire early on? Uh, I think influencer strategy was a big one. We we launched in 2015, and we're one of the first brands to start really building out a, a, a strong influencer program. And so that was one of the things that uh, that I think really propelled us is we had pretty early on several hundred influencers that were talking about kettle and fire and talking about bone broth at a time where like they weren't really talking about that many other brands. Now it's way common. You scroll through your Instagram and you're like, Oh, whoever John Mayer is talking about like the new brand of me undies that he loves. It's like, cool. I don't give a shit at the time. It resonated way more with people. And so right. we just were, we're pretty quick to get out there in terms of um, building a brand that, that influencers were talking a lot about. And, and that, that led to a lot of our growth. And I think that was for sure our biggest channel for the first like two years of the company. I think one of the kind of truisms about growth, and it's something you talk about in traction as well, is that oftentimes you have to kind of switch channels. A channel stops working as well over time as it did early on, and you have to sort of leapfrog onto something else. Did that ever happen to influencer marketing? Or it kind of petered out and you needed to switch to something else? Oh, yeah, else? for sure. I mean, we saw it get more expensive. We saw it become more challenging. It's way more crowded now, like I just, I just mentioned. And so now we're a super boring brand. We're, uh, we're in retail. We're in about 7,000 retailers, every Whole Foods. And that's like our main growth channel. We timed that leap really well. But, you know, it's certainly not a sexy growth hack to say, like, we put our product on shelves at companies <laughs> that are paid to sell it. It's like, sweet. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, pretty like standard stuff. Um, yeah. which is also another learning I've had. Like I used to think about things in terms of growth hacks and a lot of that kind of stuff. Now I think that that's, I think about that way less. I think that you might have an amazing growth hack around like how to sell product and get people to care about what you're doing on a Twitter. But like for us, that channel is just not big enough to move the needle at this point. And so we, we don't worry about it. And so we now think way more, way less about growth hacks and way more about like, how can we take advantage of large channels that if we get them to work, we can actually make, you know, it'll, it'll make a material dent in our business. How do you think tech founders should think about brand marketing? Because when I talk to people working on physical goods, I hear the word brand all the time. When I talk to people starting tech businesses, I rarely hear that word except for the biggest companies. Yeah. Um, I think that brand is code for uh, companies that have raised too much money and don't know what to do with it. Like, <laughs> I, I think that in general, you can talk about like a way luggage probably says about how they're building a brand. It's like, yeah, are you building a brand or are you spending 3 million a month on Facebook ads? And the answer, like turn off your Facebook ads, take your, take your brand marketing every day. And I can guarantee you what will happen to your growth. I, I think that brand is like a word and a term that bad marketers probably do because they feel like it's something that should be done. I think it's important from a, positioning's standpoint. I think it's important from a design and look and feel standpoint. I think it's important from a acquirer standpoint, actually. But I do not think that it is something that actually improves or like, I, I don't think it meaningfully has a meaningful impact on a company's outcomes. 
I'm, I'm super skeptical of brand in general. So brand might be important for some of the intangible things, but for actual growth, it comes down to distribution. It comes down to advertising. It comes down to products on shelves. Yeah, I think it comes down to distribution and it comes down to your product positioning. Like I think if you're Craigslist is probably a great example of this. Like they're a, by all accounts, Craigslist is the worst brand in the world, but they have a strong brand promise and they're fucking everywhere. And so they crush it. Like I think that that type of stuff I, I don't know. I, I just think that there's so many well-branded companies that just fall flat on their face. To me, I just think brand is a almost certainly a waste of time for most businesses. And that, that time and energy would be far better focused on investing in building your own unique distribution channel, improving your product, or building a real, real kind of like competitive advantage. So let's switch gears here for a second. I met a lot of founders. Am I boring you, Cortland? <laughs> yeah, we got to get on this topic. I can't listen to you talk about brand anymore, Justin. <laughs> Jesus. Trying to make the show interesting. I want people to listen all the way through, not drop the episode 30 minutes into it. <laughs> not kill themselves halfway in. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about people for a second. People are interesting. I know a lot of founders who build successful companies and they do it in almost total isolation. They're not part of any sort of scene. They aren't really particularly well-connected. I would say you're pretty much the opposite. You've been great at connecting with people who are smart, who are impressive. People hear all the time vaguely that they should be networking. What are some of the tangible benefits that you've gotten from it? Yeah, so I don't love the term networking, but I, I think that there are a lot of really smart people out there. I'm not a super smart person. And so I've benefited a lot by being around people that are way smarter than me. Like I have certainly met people who are off the charts intelligent and can just come up with amazing, interesting, brilliant ideas all on their own. I'm like a not, don't have the ability to do that. And so for me, being in San Francisco and being around people that are way smarter than me meant that I got exposed to a lot of really, really cool things. I think that there's no doubt that meeting like meeting people. I, I did a couple of things that I think were tremendous from a building my network, if you want to call it that standpoint. I'd say there's two things I probably did pretty well. One, when I was in San Francisco, I wanted to learn way more about growth marketing. I It was something I cared about. And so I started organizing a meetup that was totally informal. It was invite only. It's called it the growth group. We met once a month. I was this guy who was running a you know growth at seven direct reports at that time. We'd been acquired by Rackspace. We were doing like $3 million a year in revenue. And I was organizing this group where we had heads of growth from GitHub, Airbnb, Lyft, and like Mozilla come. And that was insane. Like I, these people were so much smarter than me. I would just like sit there and take notes and be like, oh, cool. And then kind of moderate the discussion, which was crazy. Uh, so I was surrounded by people that were way smarter than me, mostly because I took the initiative to organize groups and do things that these people wanted to do, but didn't have time to organize on their own. The second thing I think I did well is I tend to be, I think that there are a lot of people that you can meet, especially in San Francisco, who you meet up with them, you sit down and they're like so clearly ready to just like suck you of all your information and then walk away <laughs> and like just leave you drained and lifeless in the corner of the cafe, you know? And like, I, I actually kind of think the opposite. Like I plan on starting companies for a long time and I really want to work with smart, awesome people that I would consider my friends uh, for the rest of my life. And so I kind of take an opposite approach of like, try and connect on a personal level with people. Uh, not because I think it serves me better or anything like that, but because, uh, although it tends to, to be totally honest, but because uh, I really enjoy talking to people and I, I love learning about shit. I love seeing other people succeed. Like I was super pumped up when, when Indie Hacker sold a strike, like, fuck yeah, like Portland did it, you know, it's, it's really cool. So I think those are two things that really helped. And by meeting those people, it, it kind of gives you permission to say, hey, we're kind of in a growth slump right now, uh, which we have been at various times. Like, how did you think about getting out of this rut? Is there anyone I should talk to? Is there anyone I should interview? Is there anyone like I could connect with to figure out how do we get over the next kind of growth hump? Or how do I solve this very specific problem that we're having right now? Yeah, I love that point about not always trying to suck everybody dry of all their information like I do on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you're, you're like giving people a platform. It doesn't, totally doesn't apply to you. You're, you're fantastic at this. <laughs> um, you and I have a mutual friend, Julian Shapiro. He's been on the yep. show a couple times. He did this when I started Indie Hackers. He reached out and gave me all these helpful tips on how I could grow Indie Hackers and increase my revenue. 
And it was crazy helpful. Almost nobody does that. If I get a thousand emails, maybe one of them is from someone who genuinely took the time to figure out what my priorities are and offer some help with the high priority stuff. Why do you think more people don't do stuff like this? It's not uncommon advice. Yeah, I think that uh, for a lot of people, they just become, they just get tied up in stuff. They become busy. They make it not a priority. Like, I I think a lot of people um, say that they want something and they don't actually. A lot of people will say that they want to be in amazing shape, but they're not willing to take the trade off of what does it take to actually be in amazing shape? Well, it means you can't eat Oreos every day at 3 p.m. A lot of people say they want an amazing network, but they're not willing to like, invest in that time building relationships and being helpful to people when they have maybe a family they want to go home to, or, uh, you know, they want to hit the gym or they want to watch Netflix for two hours. And I'm not judging whether those are better or worse. I just think that for most people, time is their maximum constraint and people do a really bad job of evaluating what they say they want versus like their actual revealed preferences. Yeah. For a lot of this stuff, it's just so easy to underestimate the costs. It's hard. If you want to be helpful to somebody, it's probably going to require several hours, if not days, of being thoughtful and really working to be helpful. I know you've done this a couple times. You're able to help out Andrew Warner, the host of the Mixergy podcast. And you also co-wrote the book Traction with Gabriel Weinberg, who, from his perspective, you're totally an unknown quantity at that point. How have you been able to get on people's radar and be helpful? Yeah, that one was super... Both of those are super easy. I mean, I sent them a cold email... Uh, in Andrew's case, his onboarding program, I signed up for Mixergy. The onboarding experience was awful, uh, like comically bad. And so I just sent him this long email of like, Hey man, this is your main source of revenue. <laughs> like if you can improve this thing by 20%, you're killing it. And so I just sent him things that I would do differently, questions I would ask all of this. And, and he, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize it then. Um, but at the time I was kind of thinking like, Oh, he's Andrew Warner. He knows all these business people. He's running a successful thing. Like he must know everything I'm about to tell him. And the answer is yes, he does. But now that I'm like running a, a meaningful business, I way more appreciate how often and how true it is that like I know that there are 10,000 things about Kettle and Fire that could be better. I just haven't had time to focus on them, improve them, and do all that kind of stuff. So true. Um, and so just being the person that says, Hey, this sucks. Here's how I would solve it. Want me to do this for you becomes incredibly easy. And so I did that with Andrew and I, and I offered to solve it for him for free. And he was like, no, I'll pay you $200 or whatever the fuck it was. Uh, and, and I did it and it was a great and it kicked off a long, really good relationship with us that the two of us had. Yeah. I get a ton of emails for any hackers that are also pointing out things that I already know. You know, there's a bug here or wouldn't it be great if you had a mobile app? Well, I've got a list of a thousand things that I know are good ideas, that I know are bugs, totally. that I know should be fixed or improved for indie hackers, but I don't have time. I don't have time to work on the 800th most important thing. I have to work on the top most important thing. Exactly. So if you just email someone and say, hey, this thing is wrong or this thing could be better, that's not that helpful because they probably already know. Like if you want to be helpful, you have to do steps number two and three that you laid out, which is to say, here's how you can fix it. And hey, do you want me to fix this for you? Exactly. Let's talk about your book, Traction, for a bit. You wrote this book with Gabriel Weinberg, the founder of DuckDuckGo. Again, this is an extremely busy person. Uh, you were somebody who was relatively unknown at that time. How did you get onto his radar? And how did that collaboration actually work as far as the division of labor and yeah. other operational stuff? Um, it, it was pretty easy. I, I think like he had done a seven interviews uh, on Traction and the topic of getting Traction. He bought the domain tractionbook.com he had an email sign up list and had said on his blog multiple times i don't have any more time to do this project because DuckDuckGo is taking off which is crushing it's crazy it's amazing and so i reached out to him and was like hey i'm recently graduating college or about to graduate college i have nothing going on in my life because i'm not successful or smart yet and like can i help you push this project through to fruition and so it just sort of turned out he lived in the Philadelphia area, which is near where my family lives. And so we got together twice. And, and basically I was like, look, I, I fully appreciate that you probably don't think I, I can write this book. And so uh, what I'm going to do is give me like one interview and one topic and like, I'll show you what type of chapter I can write. And so I spent a week, two weeks writing uh, the first chapter of Traction Book and just sent it to him. I was like, hey, is this good enough? If so, let's, let's actually write this whole thing. And he said it was. And so the arrangement worked out really well where my time was 
far less valuable than it is. And so I wrote the first draft of almost every chapter in the book and then would send it to him. He would edit, we would go back and forth and we'd like align on a, on a final draft of that chapter and kick it to a real editor and just kind of did that for the 26 chapters in the book uh, until we had a finalized book after about a year of writing. Well, it's really blown up since then. I feel like everybody I know owns a copy of Traction. I've got it on my bookshelf behind me somewhere. Let's say you could go back in time with all the skills and the knowledge that you have now. Maybe you don't know about crypto, right? But you know about growth, you know about marketing, starting businesses. Would it still be worth it for you to take the time to reach out to Gabriel and write Traction all over again? Probably. Yeah, probably not. Um, It probably wouldn't have been worth it. I think I honestly, I'm incredibly proud of it. I think it massively helped with my learning, my network, met a bunch of friends, and and it was just a tremendous experience. It was something I wanted to do forever was just write a book. But I think that if I look at like, we wrote Traction, which did really well, like beyond what I thought it could have done. Because neither of us really wanted to be authors, we kind of wrote it and then just stepped away, you know, like put it out in the world and didn't do anything with it. I think that if I had wanted to be a thought leader or like monetize that doing consulting or speaking or whatever it is, workshops, consulting, then yeah, that would have been totally worth it. Uh, I think that because that's not what I want to do from a career standpoint, I, I, probably wouldn't do it again uh, unless it was something that I think directly like right now I would write a book on health before I would write another book on marketing because uh, I think that like that actually fits with a lot more of the goals and things that I want to achieve in my career way more so than than a book on marketing so at some point while you're working on kettle and fire early on you did something that I don't think any of my other guests have ever done and that's that you started a second business that yep. you grow to eight figures while you were running your first business, like yeah. you eight figures in revenue. And, it's and called Perfect <laughs> And you bought a third. So yeah. let's, let's do, uh, what order did that happen in? Yeah, so we launched Kettle on Fire in August 2015. We bought FOMO in August 2016. No, April 2016. And then we launched Perfect Keto or started Perfect Keto in November or October of 2016. So it, okay, so that's a yeah. lot, and like basically the span of a year, it's a little bit over a year. We won't talk about FOMO as much because maybe I'll be able to have Ryan on the podcast at some point in the future. He can go into Ooh. a crazy amount of detail. He would be uh, controversial and awesome. I know he'll be. Uh, he's a controversial guy. I like talking to him <laughs> on Twitter. He's one of those guys I have to DM on Twitter because I can't have those conversations in public. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's great though. How did you first? Like, why did you do that? Why would you distract yourself from your first business and start another one? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. I think it was probably foolish, although it, it worked out. But I think the reality is that I, I mentioned earlier, uh, for me, the biggest risk and the biggest thing I was curious about in Kettle on Fire is like, can this be a real business? And at the time, you know, we launched in August, uh, six months later, or eight months later, bought FOMO. I was still like not sure that it was going to be a real business. Wasn't really sure if it would become, uh, the business, you know, the size and scale that I wanted it to be. And so I was still kind of looking at other ideas and it was a, we had hired an incredible team. Uh, we had put the right pieces in place, I think, or, you know, as best as we could knowing what we did then. And around that time, I also like being in the space, I was like, Oh man, there, there's this, like the fundamental arbitrage that, or the fundamental opportunity that I think I saw and still see is not that like, People want bone broth, but can't get it. I think it's way more actually that there is a whole set of products that people want that are better for you and actually make you a healthier person that consumer product companies and food companies are just not making. And so as I'd seen with Kettle and Fire, like, wow, if you make a consumer product that is branded fine and meets an actual value proposition and you like know how to do online marketing where you can reach people, uh, you can grow a food brand effectively faster than has ever been possible in the history of launching food brands. Like year one or year two of most, most uh, food brands are, you know, single digit hundreds of thousands of dollars if you do really well. Uh, and so with perfect keto being on fire and talking to customers and interviewing people and saying, just being in the space, I saw keto was something that was starting to gather steam. It was something that I was trying in my life and I felt amazing. Uh, it was something that like high performance people, Tim Ferriss, Dominic D'Agostino, like a bunch of athletes and, and 
people who talk about the stuff we're starting to talk about. And it was something that if you looked on Amazon, there were literally like two products that were serving that, that niche. And so again, this was like thought kettle and fire would be a side business was wrong, but in a good way, my buddy and I, my partner perfect uh, at perfect keto, this guy, Anthony Gustin, we launched the business thinking it would be a side business just because we mainly wanted to work together. And the goal was like, let's launch this thing. And when it makes 20 grand in profit, we'll like spend it on a trip to Japan uh, just because we want to hang out with one another in Japan. And really like, that'll, that'll probably take like, 18 months. Uh, and it took like 40 days. And so we, uh, yeah. And, and so just saw that, that trend and saw that people were excited about keto, saw that the two existing companies in the space were doing a horrible job, didn't know online marketing, were putting a bunch of terrible ingredients in their products and just decided to launch it. And it, and it took off on us. So explain to me exactly what Perfect Keto is. What were you selling to consumers? Yeah. So Perfect Keto is a, is a food and supplement brand for mostly for people who want to incorporate a low carb lifestyle or keto into their life in some way. And so our first product was what we call an exogenous ketone, which is basically like when you're in a state of ketosis or which comes from eating a ketogenic diet, your body makes endogenous ketones, which are like ketone bodies, which your body burns for energy. It effectively burns fat instead of glucose, AKA sugar for energy. Uh, so what we made was an exogenous ketone, which gives you a lot of the like energy boosting effects that you get from being on a ketogenic diet, but without necessarily being in a state of ketosis. And so uh, there have been studies that supplementing with exogenous ketones can help with weight loss, can help with decrease uh, cancer inflammation, can help with uh, a lot of different metabolic markers and, and things that people generally try to improve their health with. Uh, and so that was our first product. How different was your playbook for growing Perfect Keto than it was for Kettle and Fire? It was the exact same. Uh, with one notable difference, we fucked up uh, when we launched Kettle on Fire and we totally ignored Amazon thinking like, oh, we don't know how to do Amazon. We'll handle that later. But we didn't realize that people would buy our product and resell it on Amazon, uh, which totally messed up that side of the business for us. And so when we launched Perfect Keto, we were like, we're going to go ham on Amazon on day one and follow the Kettle on Fire like online growth playbook, which we did. Okay, so I want to get a little bit more into just the details of launching a food business. Because again, you came from the tech industry, you're yeah. a marketer, <laughs> you don't know how to make food. At least you yeah. going into it. Like how do you <laughs> what goes into that? Like who do you need to know? Who do you need to contact? Like how do you get something from not existing to creating a box of bone broth? Yeah, it's tough, man. We um we emailed like four hundred something manufacturing partners to ask them like, hey, this is the product we want to make. Can you help us formulate and actually manufacture it? And it was really hard. We, we got told no 399 times. <laughs> we had one group that fortunately, the way the dynamic works is it's incredibly hard to find a co-packer. Once you do, oftentimes they're looking for new business. And so if you say like, hey, if you help us formulate this, we'll then work with you to actually make this product in production. That's kind of the, their bread and butter. And so they're willing to do it. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of cold email. It was a lot of like talking to founders of cpg companies and saying like how did you go about this the first 12 months uh all which paid off but yeah it was, it was incredibly hard this again reminds me of a uh, shoe dog where he was working with basically a manufacturer in japan to sort of work on the shoe together and the manufacturer would contribute ideas for how the shoe should look and eventually it turned into sort of a competitive arrangement where the manufacturer was like this is going really well like yeah why don't we just make our own shoes <laughs> uh are there any parallels in the food business um, some, there definitely are, you kind of have, we were lucky. We met someone early on who knew a lot of the pitfalls that these emerging brands fall into. And so from day one, we designed contracts that meant that we would minimize the risk of that happening to us. Uh, so that, that was really helpful. I thought you were going to pull out another Joseph Stalin quote uh, <laughs> there. So I'm, I'm impressed. You, you never know. <laughs> I'm really restraining myself. <laughs> Yeah, maybe Hitler next or something. You know what? Why don't I go a step further and just quote you, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, you wrote a pretty great blog post that I totally agree with that talked about something that advice that people give that you don't really agree with, which is the idea that uh, your idea doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what you're working on. It's all about the execution. And as long as you execute really hard on whatever idea you're working on, you're going to succeed. I have the polar opposite opinion. You totally. do as well. Go into that. Why don't you think good execution is enough? 
I think that execution is, and I'm not the first person to say this, but I think that execution is effectively a, a force multiplier. Um, but I think the thing that most people don't talk about, and maybe I should write a blog post on this, um, I think that most startups don't get killed on the execution side. They get killed due to like market factors. Like you make a condom for goats and it turns out no one wants that. <laughs> like that is a market Shocking. risk. Shocking. <laughs> right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a huge business. I have no idea. But so there's, that's like a market risk thing that you're exposed to and you don't even get the chance to execute well on it. And so if, if I think about like where most startups fail, it's almost always in the market risk phase, which is effectively, you just have a bad idea. Like I think of market risk as this like hurdle that you have to clear to then try and scale this like bouldering wall of execution risk. And so if your idea sucks, you're not even going to get to play the like, are you a good executor game or not? And, and so I think that it's actually incredibly important. And the value of really, really good ideas is insanely overvalued, especially because in today's environment, at least, you know, 2019, there's a huge lack of good ideas and a huge lack of big ideas. And if you have either one of those, you can suck at executing. Like read the uh, Bad Blood book by Elizabeth Holm. By all accounts, she was a trash operator, like a <laughs> horrible team. 40% of her team is quitting a year. And like she had a massive idea that she could sell. And granted, she was a fraud, but still, it's like she raised $800 million. I mean, if you have a good idea, money will come in this environment. And, and, and I think that's never been more true. So I can't miss this opportunity when I have you on the podcast, Justin. You're a super healthy guy, super fit. You're looking well-muscled and you're in they're, your shirt. They're inflatable. <laughs> Are they? <laughs> um, we all hear about diet and exercise and sleep. Obviously, it's easier said than done. Otherwise, everybody would be super healthy. You seem to do a good job at these, and you're also running multiple health food companies. Why are so many founders getting this wrong? And what are some ways that founders can do a better job preventing their businesses from making their health so much worse? It's a great question. I think this is one of the things that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are stupid about. Uh, I think that in general, the sort of engineer mind thinks about the body as like this thing that I can hack. Like, oh, I need 2,000 calories a day. And if I get them in perfect proportions, like I'll be totally healthy. So I'll just drink soy all the time. It's like, no, that's really stupid. Like <laughs> the body is an incredibly complex system. We literally are still finding out new systems, new, new things about it. Like every year, uh, it's not just something that you can throw pasta, McDonald's and Soylent into and expect that your health outcomes are going to be the same as someone who's eating like a paleo non-processed whole foods diet. And so I, I tend to think that what you put into your body is incredibly important. It dictates your energy levels, your mental well-being, your emotional well-being, your like clear-headedness, everything. Uh, like one of the most impressive things about Reed Hoffman to me is how much he's achieved while being like someone who's not super healthy. He must, his mind, like, oh my God, if that guy got healthy, he could run the world and like take over America. It's incredible. And so what I do in general is like, I eat a mostly paleo diet. Uh, I focus on getting enough sleep. I try and cut out toxic relationships in my life and make sure that like the four pillars for me are like food, stress, uh, sleep and movement. And like, as long as I'm getting enough of those, as long as I'm moving some, I'm not crazy stressed, which means my relationships are good. I'm not killing myself at work, uh, on a daily basis. And you know, my sleep is good. My diet's good. I'm, I'm good. I think this stuff can be a lot easier than people need, you know, tend to tend to make it out to be. Yeah, it's all interconnected. And if you're sitting down oh, yeah. in your startup every day and you're sort of, if your brain's foggy and you're not coming up with good ideas, you're not able to work or stay focused, it's probably related to all these other things that you might not uh, totally. think to connect it to. Oh, I mean, I think it's crazy that like so many tech companies in the Valley will serve pizza and beer at 5 p.m. and then have like peanut M&Ms and Coca-Cola on tap anytime their workers <laughs> want. It's like, what, what a recipe to like make everyone at your company tired and super unhappy. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, Stripe's got the polar opposite thing going on where at lunch it's a lot of salads and vegetables and proteins. Uh, and it's very low carb. There's almost no bread. Of course. Example. Collison Brothers, they fucking know their shit. Yeah, they know what's going on. <laughs> um, let's close out here. One of my goals with this show is to get more people to start companies just because I think it'll be awesome and life-changing for so many people if they can get over that initial hurdle of hesitation. 
Justin, what would you say to somebody who's considering getting started, but they're telling themselves, now is not the right time. I don't know enough. I'm not ready. I would say that if you're, I would think, I would think about lowering your risk. So for me, I was not sure that I was ready to start a company. Uh, and so I did it in an environment where failure had a really, really small cost. Like if you told me when I launched Kettle and Fire, you're going to launch a bone broth company. I would have been like, Oh God, no, that sounds scary. I don't know what I'm doing. But instead I told myself like, I'm going to test a landing page for an idea that happens to be a bone broth company. If that fails, extraordinarily low risk, nothing, no downside. I've lost maybe three hours of my time. Uh, and so for me, at least with the way my psychology works, the only thing that's ever worked for me is like breaking, like removing this idea of I need to start a massive company and instead just breaking it down into really easy, concrete next steps that at no phase, are you risking the feeling of like, I may be a failure if this doesn't work out. And that's the only way I've ever been able to do anything. Cool. So you just break it down into baby steps. So every step you take is not that big and not that risky. Well, yeah. And I, and I think the biggest piece there, at least for me, is just like not risking my, I think it's really hard to risk your identity on something unproven. And so if I was like, I'm going to launch Kettle and Fire and I fail, I'm a failed startup CEO, failed founder. That sucks. I don't want to do that. That's super scary to me. If I'm like testing a landing page and have this identity of someone that is testing an idea and trying to figure out what he's doing next, it becomes really incongruent if I'm not actually testing ideas. And so I think you want to shape your identity to like your, your conception of yourself to guide you in the direction that you want to go uh, and make it so that failure does not feel so costly. Sage advice. Well, listen, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Hope you're not too drained after being peppered with questions. And, no, uh, man, that shirt kept me awake this whole time. <laughs> I'm going to have to put these on YouTube. Now we've got video for the podcast. It's like a whole other element. Thanks again, Justin. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to and ping you online if they want to? Sure. Yeah. Uh, on my website, justinmares.com, or I'm on Twitter at JWMares, M-A-R-E-S. Thanks so much, Justin. Thanks, man. Listeners, it would really help the show if you took a minute to reach out to Justin and just let him know that you enjoyed hearing from him on the podcast. He is, as he said, JW Mayers on Twitter, and I would really appreciate it if you just showed him some love. I also appreciate hearing from you myself. I am C.S. Allen on Twitter. That's C-S-A-L-L-E-N. If you learned something useful from the podcast, let me know. Or if you have any suggestions at all for what guests I should bring on, topics I could cover, or other ways I can improve the show, I'm all ears. It's super hard to get feedback on a podcast, so I love it when you reach out to me on Twitter. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.